Welcome to Nakubo in Brief, a podcast series from the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO John Walda, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission with this podcast is to help our listeners better understand the challenges that face the business of higher education. Our hope is that you walk away with a stronger sense of the trends, policies, legislative, and regulatory issues that may impact campuses today and in the future. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of educational tools at www.nakubo.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Nakubo in Brief. My name is Megan Strand, your host for today, and I'd like to thank you so much for tuning in with us today. I'm excited to be here with Megan Schneider, who is Assistant Director for Federal Affairs for Nakubo. This is the episode you've probably all likely been waiting for because Megan is going to share her thoughts on the incoming Trump administration and, of course, how this change in political leadership may impact you as a CBO. Welcome, Megan. Hi, thanks for speaking with me today. In this election, Republicans were able to t- take control of both Congress and the White House. So how are Republicans prioritizing their goals and how are Democrats responding to this new political power structure in Washington? Yeah, so I think we see um, a lot of excitement on the part of Republicans, understandably, that they now have control of both chambers of Congress and the White House. I do think that there is maybe a tendency to think that because Republicans now do have control of Congress and the White House, that things will move really quickly and things will mm. get done very quickly. I think that that's not entirely true, though. Um, I think when you look at the Republican Party, there's a lot of, uh, I don't want to call it fractures, but certainly ideological divisions within it. You have the Tea Party, who is a small minority in the House, but certainly a very powerful one. And they are not really sort of the group that will fall in line, as it were, or mm-hmm. do something just to sort of appease an administration. Um, And then there are just other sort of ideological splits. So I think people sort of heard Republicans taking both chambers and assume that they're going to sort of be able to do what they want when they want. And I think that it's actually a little bit more nuanced than that. And then when we look at the Senate side, we realize that while they do hold the Senate, they only have a couple vote majority. The Democrats have actually responded to the new political power structure by making some pretty strategic leadership choices. The biggest, of course, is we have Chuck Schumer replacing Harry Reid uh, as leadership of the Democrats in the Senate side. And that's really interesting because although Harry Reid was generally always pretty well-liked by both parties, Chuck Schumer is both well-liked but also a strategist. That's sort of what he's known for, and a lot of people sort of criticized Harry Reid for not having that skill. So I think Chuck Schumer is sort of the guy that the Democrats want leading them when they need to maybe be a little bit more strategic And then we see, you know, who else was elected to Democratic leadership in the Senate, people like Bernie Sanders, who, of course, is technically an independent, not a Democrat uh, on the far left. But then we also see the Democrats bringing people like Joe Manchin in, who is much more on the conservative side um, from the very conservative state of West Virginia. And it's clear that the Democrats are sort of trying to appeal to as wide of a base as they can within the Senate because they know they really only need to sway a couple of Republicans on the fence on any given vote and they can really make some moves. So I think that Republicans are understandably excited, but I don't think that it'll be 
you know, the fast paced Republican all agenda that people sort of think that it might be. So what early executive actions can we expect from President-elect Trump? And what do you believe will be some of his top priorities as he first takes office? So I think the one thing that we're hearing from both parties is, and President-elect Trump himself, is tax reform. There, of course, will have to be a lot of budget drafting and budget reconciliation going on at the beginning of the year. But tax reform, both on the corporate and individual side, will be their number one priority. That's absolutely what we're going to see, first of all. We will see some movement on uh, the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. President-elect Trump talked a lot about infrastructure, and I think that to some extent we will see movement on that in the first six to eight months. But I think when we're looking at the first, certainly 90 days, but probably I would say even the first six to eight months, tax reform will take over. And I know that we heard President-elect Trump uh, talk a lot about immigration when he was candidate Trump. Mm-hmm. But I think the uh, the reality is, given the, the big lift that tax reform represents, that will probably take precedence and immigration will probably, when if and when we see it come up and uh, see moves being made on it in a substantive way, it probably will be more towards the end of President-elect Trump's first year in office. Talk a little bit about congressional leadership and committee makeup. Has that changed in any meaningful ways that we should know about? It has changed in a couple of notable ways, one in particular that I'll get to, uh, but just starting with the House Appropriations Committee, um, Rodney Freilinghausen of New Jersey has replaced uh, Harold Rogers of Kentucky. As some people may know, the Republicans have rules on uh, for term limits for committee leadership. So Congressman Rogers was just term limited out. Over on the Ways and Means Committee in the House, Congressman Sandy Levin, who is from Michigan, but has been around and has been the ranking member or chairman, depending on whether or not the Dems were in power for years and years and years, and has a lot of institutional knowledge, has uh, stepped down. He said that he is making way for younger leadership. So in his absence, it was either going to be Javier Becerra of California that would take that pretty important role or uh, Richie Neal of Massachusetts. In recent weeks, uh, Javier Becerra has, of course, been nominated to be the attorney general of California. He is going to take that job. So it's pretty much all but certain that Congressman Neal of Massachusetts will take that role, uh, which I think is actually a really great development for higher ed. Congressman Neal is supportive of higher ed. He understands the need for it, which isn't the case with every member of Congress. So I think for Nakubo's part, we'll certainly be doing some advocacy efforts with him. But I think that he is on our side, which is great because the other notable uh, sort of movement on committees is Virginia Fox. Uh, Virginia Fox is now taking over as the chairwoman of the House Education Committee. CBOs may know that she was previously the chairwoman of the Education Committee Subcommittee on Higher Education. So, I mean, she's certainly very familiar with this area. It's something that she's pretty passionate about. That being said, um, anybody that's read her interview recently in Inside Higher Ed or has followed her really at all will know that she is, to put it lightly, not a huge fan of how higher education is operating today. Um, She thinks that there's administrative bloat. She thinks that endowments are not being managed in the way that they should be. She thinks that college costs have gotten out of control. Generally speaking, you could say that she is not a fan of how the higher education system runs. She has said that she'd like to dismantle the Department of Education altogether, um, privatize student loans, close the Office of Civil Rights at the Department of Ed, which handles uh, campus sexual assault. 
assault and Title IX issues. So all that is to say we have our work cut out for us in the uh, in the upcoming Congress. She is a huge advocate for deregulation, which I think is a, a good way for us to sort of find common ground with her. I think all CBOs will know that uh, the regulatory burden on colleges and universities was certainly ramped up during the Obama administration. And I think that Virginia Fox represents some opportunity there. But she is not a huge fan of the status quo. So it's certainly something that we're watching, certainly something that will play into our advocacy efforts in the coming year, but definitely something to be aware of. Many listeners are probably curious about the impact of this new political makeup on the new overtime rules that went into effect on December 1st. Do you have any thoughts on what might happen there? Yeah. So just brief reminder, although I'm sure most CBOs are aware, uh, those rules were supposed to go into place on uh, December 1st, and most colleges and universities, most if not all, took steps ahead of that December 1st deadline to be in compliance when the rule went into place. We now know, not too terribly long ago, a preliminary injunction coming out of the Eastern District of Texas was issued and delayed that rule going into place. Now, the Department of Labor has already appealed that preliminary injunction decision to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. So from the court side, really, it's just a waiting game right now. The preliminary injunction was a little bit of a surprise. It was actually an Obama-appointed judge that issued that ruling. Um, So I think that there's definitely some ambiguity as to how the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals will rule on the Department of Labor's appeal. From the legislative side, President-elect Trump has already said that he has considered repealing that rule once he becomes president. Whether he does that in its entirety or only repeals parts of it is yet to be seen. There's also been a lot of movement around a very complicated and little-used rule called the Congressional Review Act that may give congressional Republicans the ability to scale back on that rule pretty significantly, if not repeal it entirely. But that is a little bit more complicated. It involves how many days Congress ends up being in session this year, which is yet to be seen. So I would say that while we definitely understand there's a lot of concern about this, We are monitoring it closely, and right now it's just a a waiting game to see. Can you remind us what President-elect Trump said about higher education on the campaign trail and whether so far he's sticking to those statements? That's sort of an interesting question, right? Because he didn't say a ton, Mm -hmm. Um, certainly compared with the the Clinton campaign who put out a lot on both K-12 and higher education. President-elect Trump was, was much more quiet about his thoughts on higher education. Um, He said a little bit about endowments and sort of endowment management and how he thinks that it could be done better. But the interesting thing about that is we've now seen recently with his nomination of Betsy DeVos to be the Secretary of Education that she sort of reflects that, right? So we know a lot about her and her thoughts on K-12. She's a big school choice advocate, uh, very much in favor of vouchers. The National Education Association was very opposed to her nomination. But sort of similar to President-elect Trump, she hasn't expressed much, if any, feelings on higher education. That being said, she and her husband do run a foundation in their home state of Michigan. That foundation has given millions to uh, colleges and universities in Michigan. I think they've even established a series of scholarships. So she certainly at least personally seems to see value in higher education. But I think that we'll definitely, under sort of her guidance, see a trend of deregulation continuing. I think Virginia Fox's appointment is a little bit more 
concerning in light of the fact that neither she nor President-elect Trump seems to feel like they have a lot of strong sentiments on higher education. If neither of them are saying much about it and we're just left with Virginia Fox really taking efforts to reform higher education, that's uh, it certainly means that we have our work cut out for us. Okay, I want to circle back and talk a little bit more about um, tax reform. So this has obviously been discussed by both parties quite a bit in recent years. So will we actually see comprehensive tax reform coming to our our country soon? Yes. Yeah. I think actually in a in somewhat of a relief for people of both parties, tax reform is all but certain to happen. I think both parties sort of realize that it needs to happen. And I think both parties have agreed that we can't do corporate tax reform without also doing individual or vice versa. So yes, at the, at the beginning of the year, it's absolutely going to start to move. And related to that, we've seen, you know, Paul Ryan's tax reform elements as part of his better way. Um, We've seen former Congressman Cam's draft on tax reform. For higher ed purposes, though, what Nakubo is really watching is what those tax reform efforts will mean um, in related to uh, unrelated business income tax, bond financing, tax-exempt status of colleges and universities, and of course, endowments. And the sort of endowment tax proposals. We've seen uh, Congressman Tom Reed actually just recently, I think at the end of last week, put out a vision for students that featured a pretty lengthy section on endowment reform, including an endowment tax that uh, would tax endowments at 30 percent based on various different factors. So tax reform is definitely happening and will have a lot of potential implications for higher ed. So Nakubo is definitely watching it closely and uh, developing advocacy plans in relation to that. Let's talk a little bit about Obamacare. This is something you referenced earlier, President-elect Trump talking about repealing Obamacare. Can he do this? And if so, do you think he will? Yeah. So that's an interesting question. I think that Obamacare, the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, played really well for candidate Trump and saying that he was going to repeal it worked really well as sort of a a strategy during his candidacy. Since becoming president-elect Trump, we've actually seen him scale back quite a bit on that plan. As opposed to repealing it, he said he'll just take different portions of it and alter it. Um, And he said that if he does repeal it, he wants to have something to replace it. So I think that that is sort of optimistic for people that are in favor of the ACA. Uh, There is also a wrinkle to this. When the ACA was passed, part of it was a a huge expansion of Medicaid. Um, And that Medicaid expansion benefited a lot of the more conservative states. Uh, We we look at places like West Virginia, Arizona, Arkansas. And there are a lot of uh, Republican congressional members from those states that I think will be less eager than we think to repeal different parts of Obamacare because that Medicaid expansion was actually pretty beneficial to their states. So I think while we will see action on the ACA, I don't think we'll see the sort of complete repeal of Obamacare that uh, President-elect Trump talked about when he was a candidate. Any other predictions, Megan, you can make about the potential impacts or opportunities for colleges and universities under this new administration? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that Higher ed, sort of rightly so, is on its guard right now um, under this new administration. But I think there's a lot of opportunity here. I think deregulation will be huge in easing sort of the regulatory burden on colleges and universities that, as any CBO knows, represents a pretty huge chunk of their budget. I think that we'll definitely be taking advantage of opportunities to 
make rollbacks on those regulations where it makes sense to do so and in ways that benefit colleges and universities. I also think that the time has never really been more ripe than it is now to convey the value of a college degree. There seems to be both in Congress and in the general public this sense that a college degree isn't really worth what it used to be. We know, those of us in higher ed know, that the statistics just don't support that. Um, across the board, a college degree is still a good value. It's still, you know, the number one of the number one ways to increase your earning potential over a lifetime. And generally speaking, we see people with degrees doing better. So I think that in this new Congress, there's a lot of opportunity to sort of appeal to them and appeal to economic reason. And I think that while there may be a lot that we're dealing with, there's a lot of opportunity as well to sort of tell our story and uh, share with the general public the value of higher ed. Well, thank you so much, Megan, for joining me today and for pulling out your political crystal ball. We're certainly glad you're here to provide some updates for us. Absolutely. I think if we we learned anything in this election cycle, it's that maybe, you know, predictions aren't always <laughs> worth what we think they are. But I think, you know, we've definitely started to see things being done and we have a much better picture than we did even a few weeks ago of what the new administration will look like. You can find out more about today's episode and Megan by visiting the distance learning section of nukubo.org. Make sure you subscribe to Nukubo in brief in iTunes so that you'll get the latest episodes instantly. And on behalf of Megan and myself, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Nukubo in Brief. Mm-hmm.